Welcome back to episode four of Laugh, Think, Blow Your Mind podcast. This is the show where we review the best bits of content from around the grounds, and we ask you to share that right back to us to talk about and review here on the show. On this week's episode, we're going to talk health and wellness with Kelly Starrett, who was on the Modern Wisdom podcast. I'm also going to introduce you to the two sides of Theo Vaughn. He makes us laugh with his appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience, and he gets us thinking on his own podcast with his conversation that he had with Malcolm Gladwell. We didn't get a listener recommendation this week. That's okay. I've got plenty of reviews lined up and ready to go, but I do really like getting recommendations and suggestions from you guys, so please don't be shy. We have plenty to get to this week, but before we do, I wanted to ask for your help. To help this show grow, it would be really helpful if you could give us a follow on your podcast app that you listen to, and if you're feeling really generous, you can find us over on Instagram and hit the follow button on there as well. As always, you can get in touch with the show via Instagram or by emailing ltbympodcast at gmail.com. And that's enough of my shameless begging. Let's get into the show. This first podcast is a relatively new listen for me. I found this pod by hearing the podcast host, Chris Williamson, on the Joe Rogan podcast about a year ago. And I think that's why the JRE podcast is so good. It's like a spawn of podcasts to find new interesting people. And this episode with Chris Williamson was awesome. And I was like, who is this really intelligent, interesting guy that I've never heard of before? And then I did a bit of a dig into him and I found that he had a podcast called Modern Wisdom and I added that to my list of follows. Now, I don't listen to every episode of his religiously. I do pick and choose the topics that are of interest to me and health and wellness is obviously an interest that I have. And I also wanted to point out he has a really good interview style. It's very minimalistic. And he lets the guest who is the expert do all the heavy lifting and get them to do a lot of the talking, which is exactly why we press play on the podcast in the first place. I should take his advice and get into this first pod review myself. So his guest on the episode is Kelly Starrett. This episode was released back in April on the Modern Wisdom podcast, so you have to do a bit of a dig into the back catalog to find it. Kelly Starlet is a physiotherapist, or in the US, I think they call them a physical therapist. Shout out to all my American listeners. There's quite a few of you, so g'day. Um, he's also a speaker, an author, and quite an influential voice in the health and wellness industry. Chris gives us a really good summary of what they talk about in their chat, so let's start with that. Kelly has broken down his philosophy into simple vital signs that you should focus on to move smoother, sleep better, live longer, and train harder. Expect to learn how to fix your posture if you sit at a desk all day, what nutrient-dense foods you need to be eating more of, why you need to spend more time on the ground, how to burn an extra 100,000 calories per year with one change, the simplest way to track 10,000 steps per day, the most important health metrics you need to be tracking, how to stay disciplined with your new fitness habits, and much more. So hopefully that's piqued your interest. Kelly Starrett has recently written a book called Built to Move. But after watching a YouTube book review on this, I have to say I wasn't that interested in looking into it any further. He outlines that movement is really important and then went through the 10 most important movements we should all be able to do and what's the right technique to use with those movements. Not really my cup of tea, but in this conversation, you can tell that he really does have a wealth of knowledge, uh, and this conversation is well worth listening to. 
The first point he brings up is that we aren't moving nearly enough and that we should be and why that movement is so important. Okay, so how frequently do people sit, stand, and walk? Have you ever seen any statistics on this? Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. Uh, t- well, you know, the key to think about all of this is to say, all right, for literally we haven't changed much to two and a half million years of evolution. And especially in the last 10,000 years, we're the same person. I mean, I'm a little fatter, your femur's a little longer. And then what we really can, from there, is not have some paleolithic, romantic model of we should eat, you know, fermented and buffalo livers and... It gets a little crazy. What we can ask is, what did our environment look like? Because I have to think you ha- it's important, it will be useful as, a, as an intellectual exercise to sort of ask, why is our lymphatic system bootstrapped into our movement system? Lymphatic system is your sewage system, right? It, it processes all the normal waste that are too, waste particles and products that are too big to go into circulatory system. And that system is a bunch of one-way tubes that's driven by muscle contraction. And so it's almost like, We've been evolved to walk or move a little bit more in the day than we currently are. And what we're seeing, for example, is that most adults are moving less than 3,000 total steps a day. And we can find that now because everyone has a motion tracker. It's their, it's their phone. So what we're seeing is, hey, there's sort of this been this creep into mismatch between human and environment. And now we're having to be a little bit more conscious about seeing if we can remedy some of those things. Now, he, he goes on from there to talk about that standing Standing up all day is not the answer either. It's more to do with our total movement. He does give a good suggestion in this next clip of a simple movement that we could all be doing while sitting in front of the tally and how many steps we should be aiming for on average per day. Okay, so give us something applied. Let's say if I, if I know that I'm engaged in some sedentary behaviors because I can't help it, then the first thing I need to do is say, hey, I need to move more. So what does that look like? And I'm not talking about exercise. If you get to the gym, that's kudos to you. But the first order of business is to say, hey, where in my day can I control and have some more agency? Well, that might be around lunchtime, around breakfast, around dinner. So maybe it's sort of the book ends of my day. And then the, the chaos of the day, I got my kids off to school and now I'm just you know holding on tight. All I can do is try to walk more, move more. And now when we give someone a clear objective and say, hey, look, we know that most of the good benefits really start to happen between six and 8,000 steps, that becomes a reasonable number to hit, right? I'm not saying 15,000 steps or you're a failure. I'm just saying, hey, we really can start to see a lot of the good benefits of moving more kick in at six to eight. But if you're also having a hard time falling asleep, we might need to push that to 10 to 12 to accumulate more exercise fatigue. On the other side too, we can start. So that means for you, you're like, hey, I, I have to sit all day long, can't control that, but I can control the bookends of where and how I'm going to move more just to get more steps in. Are there some simple things and inputs into some shapes that I can put in that help me maintain my native ranges? And you'll see in the book, we have things like the couch stretch, which maybe you can't do at work, but you absolutely can do things called split squats at work. So get into a tandem stance, squeeze your butt, drop in a little low, hold that for five breaths, do it again. Or What do you mean when you say tandem position for the people? I mean, something looks like a lunge shape or taking that hip into extension. In this situation, the thing that's going to be probably most likely to be limited from lots of sedentary time is your ability to extend your hip, not hip extension, standing up from a squat or the toilet. Actually, taking that knee behind your butt into a lunge or a sprint-like shape Mm -hmm. and spend time there. That's the thing that we want you to start to be exposed to more. This next clip is great. I've, I've started doing this for myself as well. And almost straight away, I felt an improvement in my lower back and my hips. It's pretty simple. You just sit on the ground for the first 30 minutes or so when watching TV. Now, he doesn't mention it in this clip, but 
But he does say later on that you just sit in any position on the floor. And the point is, after a while, you become uncomfortable and then you change position and it's perfectly fine. And sort of part of the point is to fidget around. And that that's actually the point is to move around. Every time you get uncomfortable, move to a new position. And that's adding to the variety of different end range positions that your body's sitting in and has to get comfortable with. So let's hear from Kelly and why he thinks this is so important. You know, what's happening now is that as soon as you have this consciousness, this think, can I breathe in this position? Because fundamentally, we can ask the question or, or come back to this truism. If I can't breathe in a position, I don't own that position. And that was Gray Cook who I first said that, right? The, the, one of the masters and the brains behind FMS. So if I want to tell my brain that I own a shape and that this shape is safe, the first and easiest way to do that is to make sure that I can ventilate fully and maximally. You and a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Alexander, are very big about getting up and down off the ground. It's something that he is always telling me to do whenever I go to the sauna with him and I sit down, homeboy's in a, the bottom of a squad or he's in a lotus position or he's in a 90-90. What is it that you guys are arriving at with regards yeah. to being on the ground and getting up off the ground? Why is that so special? You know, I think even just till a few hundred years ago, we slept on the ground, we toileted on the ground, we cooked on the ground, we spent a lot of time on the ground. There is some thinking and really proposed by a, a really brilliant person named Philip Beach that one of the ways the body tunes itself is to spend time on the ground. All the different positions that you're fidgeting load us in specific ways. They make our backs round. We have to load and sit in this 90-90 position. We long sit. Where during the course of just sitting on the ground for 30 minutes, you are going to spend 30 minutes at some end range positions that are going to help you work on your having access to better range of motion and things you actually care about. Well, one of the things we know is that the number one reason people end up in nursing homes is they can't get up off the ground independently. In the future, there's a couple things that are hugely important, getting up and down off the ground and not losing my balance. So if I work backwards from them, then I can say, hey, it's really easy for me to wait till I'm just 70 or 80 and be like, oh, I can't do it. Let me go to a special class and see a physical therapist and rebuild my bone density and get stronger. Or during the course of the day, I can just say, hey, I'm watching TV at night, sit on the ground for the first 30 minutes of that show. And when we start to do that, you'll start to see things like my back feels better, my hips feel better. So later on in their conversation, they talk about the calorie or the caloric impact of moving more. And this is not necessarily exercising more or going to the gym more. They talked about from sitting in less traditional positions, so sitting on the floor, perching over something, uh, or standing, and also combining that with walking more. And that alone has a massive impact, not only on caloric expenditure, but on the thing he called circulation decongestion. So moving more helps our own body systems work and function better. Let's have a listen. When we wrote Deskbound, one of the things that Juliet found, she found this online calculator that you add in your weight and da da da, and she discovered that if she just switched from sitting to perching, being more active, she burned an additional hundred thousand calories a year. Hundred thousand. I outweighed my wife by a hundred pounds, basically. And so I'm like, okay, let me round down. So 170,000 calories a year if I choose not to sit. Just in choosing not to sit in a tra traditional chair, 170,000 calories of ice cream. Go ahead and Google what your favorite ice cream is and then just convert that into peeps, beer, whiskey, whatever it is you give a shit about, convert that amount and that's free money. That's free. I didn't have to exercise. I didn't have to change my diet. Just by making myself move more and requiring more of my body. I want you to be able to handle the workloads you're engaged in. 
we have started having all of our elite teams and athletes walk more, even if they're elite athletes. And guess what happens? Their tissues are healthier. The heart rate variability improves. The resting heart rate goes down. They feel springier the next day. They have fewer tendon problems and skin problems. It's remarkable when we think about circulation decongestion. That's what walking is. The final clip I wanted to add in here is Kelly's thoughts on sleep. And most of this didn't come as a surprise to me as I've been interested in this topic quite a bit in the past. He says good sleep is set up from your activities during the day. And he goes on he goes on about a lot of different protocols here, but I think some of them are, are over the top, to be honest. But the ones that I've found to have the biggest positive impact on my sleep is when I don't eat at least two hours before bed, not drinking alcohol, not drinking coffee or caffeine after about midday, one o'clock, um, and getting enough activity and movement during the day. And one more point on caffeine. I heard this from Matt Walker, who is probably the number one sleep expert in the world. He said that having caffeine later in the day is extremely bad for sleep. And the common response that he hears, and I've heard this before as well, is caffeine doesn't affect me. I, I can fall, fall straight asleep after having a you know an espresso or something like that. And you might be able to fall asleep, but it is affecting your quality of sleep. So you're far less likely to get into the restorative REM and deep sleep cycles that we really need to get into. So with all that being said, here's Kelly's thoughts and protocols on sleep. Setting up yourself for sleep starts in the day. So I need to make sure I've eaten enough calories and I can stop eating early. That That's made a big difference for me. What sort of, a time, also, what sort of a time window is that typically? 7.30, 8 p.m. Because um, I have kids. And what's that, two hours, two and a half hours before bed? Yeah, it's about two hours usually. If I can get, we usually try to eat between 6.30 and 7. That's sort of when, when it works for our family. But sometimes I have kids who play water polo and it just doesn't work. So we have to do the best we can. But I try to eat earlier in the day than later because it's just messes up my sleep. It doesn't feel very good. I cut off caffeine earlier in the day. I max up my steps early in the day. And of course, my phone's out of the room. Duh. Like there's some things like that. Um, I have some red lights in the bedroom <laughs> that I think really make a difference because the red light does not muck up your circadian rhythm. So I like to sit on the ground when we watch TV a little bit, but I do a little soft tissue work before I go to bed. And what I usually find that that soft tissue work helps me relax. It's like getting a little self massage. That's when I put my soft tissue work in. And then I go to bed at the same time every single night or in that same window and it's early. And so keep, and I sit with an eye mask and I, my bed is cold and I do all the things. I take 500 milligrams of magnesium before I go to bed. And those are my routines. I do that. And with what Lane Norton says is bone crushing consistency. One of our friends recently said that, you know, you feel so terrible on Monday, not because any other reason it's Monday, it's because you're jet lagged because you messed up your sleep. Okay, that's going to do it for that one. Hopefully, it got you thinking about a different approach to health and wellness, like sitting on the floor or doing those split lunges, and maybe you got some useful information about improving your sleep. If you want to listen to the full episode, head over to the Modern Wisdom podcast and have a listen. Moving on now, I think it's time to have a laugh, and there is none better to do this than Theo Vaughn. If you don't know Theo, he is a hilarious stand-up comedian and podcaster. His podcast is called This Past Weekend. He has a very unique mind and thinks and talks totally different to anyone else. At first, you could be lulled or fooled into thinking that it's an act that he's putting on, but it's not. He just is, he really is that different. I'm going to split Theo into two halves here. I'm first going to show his funny side by reviewing a recent episode on the Joe Rogan experience. And then I'm going to share his more serious side, reviewing one of his conversations with Malcolm Gladwell 
over on Theo's own podcast this past weekend. And there's no better place to start than at the opening of uh, on the Joe Rogan Experience where Joe gives Theo some love and they talk about Theo's surprise guest spot the night before at Rogan's new comedy club called The Mothership in Austin, Texas. Theo Austin, Texas. What what a pop you got last night. That was a lot of pressure. That was a lot of pressure. They went crazy. One of the nice things about these shows that we do is that no one knows who's going to be on them. These Joe Rogan and Friends shows. So it could be a surprise. You were surprised last night. Yeah. And uh, we got got video of it. Is it uh, on the uh, Mothergram Mothership Instagram? That's actually a better name. It should be the Mothership. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. Look at this. Do they have a pop? All right, here we go. Bro, you got a standing O. What's up? <laughs> Crazy, dude. You spent the first 30 seconds of your set high-fiving people. Come on, son. Look at this. Look at this. It was crazy. Some dude threw some semen up at me, I think. Real semen? Like in that movie, um, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I don't know Mix. if it was real or not. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I mean, the guy locked in the cell. Yeah, I batted it down. I respected it. But, <laughs> but yeah, people, that dude, that was awesome, man. Thank you. Congrats. My pleasure. Yeah, dude, it was awesome. I mean, that was crazy. That was probably... That was a highlight of my... I mean, that was a, a highlight of my life, I think. <laughs> I think so too. Because you get to be a surprise. Like, there's not as much surprises anymore in the world, you know. It's true. So to to have a moment where you're like part of a surprise, I think felt really yeah. good. I know that's a bit of a random clip to start off with, but I just I just thought it was so great. So this next clip is the best three minutes of the entire three hour conversation that they had. Now I had to listen to this whole clip a few times while editing this, and every single time it made me laugh without fail. And to add to it, they even started off by talking about one of my favorite comedians, Joey Diaz, who I introduced to you in the last episode. So it's just great timing. This conversation about Joey actually triggered a memory. Theo remembered a time he was on LSD as a kid back in Louisiana. uh, And you have to hear how this story goes. I remember watching Joey Diaz. He's the I would find myself get when he would when his music would come on, whatever that intro music he would use. Yeah, yeah. Whenever that would come on, I would literally, without even doing it, I would be out of my seat. Yeah, I would be so excited. He's the most watched comic by other comics. Mm, Interesting. I would imagine. Don't you think? Like, if you knew that Joey was going up in the OR, you'd go and have a seat in the back. Always. Yeah, because you're going to see something, you know. Some crazy shit's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, 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 dude, yeah. yeah, He's all fired up. He's, he's going to say a, the words we're not supposed to say. He's on 500 milligrams of edibles. <laughs> yeah, dude, <he> <laughs> <laughs> Bro, when he, one time I went over there, and it was him and Lee Syatt, you know, when he's mm-hmm. got Lee over there, like, and he would just, like, <laughs> Lee's on, like, 70,000. The flying Jew. <laughs> he turned Lee Syatt into a fucking total edible head. Oh, dude, Lee was a fucking... He was falling asleep while he was producing the show. He's producing the show. Yeah. There's a video of it, of him producing the show. He's producing Joey's show, and he's like, this. Bro, well, here's what Out happened. cold. Here's what happened. One time, I get there, and I was like, hey, I think I hear a little whistling in the headphones. And Lee's like, oh, I'm trying to figure it out. So Lee's like trying to figure it out. By the end, he's eating so many edibles. Like, <laughs> Lee was literally sitting there. He's like... 
It was him. It was him. <laughs> By the end. <laughs> In the beginning, it wasn't. It was some other thing. But we like, started recreating his yeah, own. We manifested our own destiny, bro. Dude, one time we were schizophrenic breaks. We did some LSD, right? We were children, right? And so we went to the um, Waffle House because it was open, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when you were on drugs and you were a kid, you basically, like, that's the downside of having any place that stays open all night. It's like right. people are going to come there. They're all on know? drugs. No yeah, one's okay. sober at Waffle yeah, House, yeah, right? <laughs> So we get there, dude, and uh, and we're in there, and my buddy starts laughing so hard, he's like uh, kind of convulsing a little bit, my buddy Scott, and the waiter was a uh, black gentleman and a gay guy, and we'd never seen a uh, gay black dude, right? So anyway, he starts doing the Heimlich maneuver on my buddy, right? And he wasn't choking, he was just losing his shit because he was so fucking geeked up on LSD, right? <laughs> So, bro, so this dude's doing a highlight. He's not even dude, choking. He's not even fucking choking. Did you tell him he wasn't choking? I couldn't speak. I was laughing <laughs> so fucking hard. <laughs> it was <laughs> unreal, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and then how did he? Did he figure out that your buddy wasn't choking, bro? <laughs> I think I disappeared and just woke up in the sixth grade. <laughs> But man, I just, we laughed so fucking hard, man. I hope I'm not the only one that found that so funny. Anyway, the next thing they talk about is they, um, Theo, they talk about Theo's battle with depression. And it's actually something I've noticed with comedians in general. And I, I listen to a lot of comedian podcasts and almost all of them are battling with some type of mental health issue. And, and it's actually pretty common for them, for some of the best comedians to, have a really messed up um, life when they're growing up. And I guess in that situation, you can either laugh or you cry and they're choosing laughter as their way to get through that, I guess. Um, I didn't include the heavy part about Theo's depression, um, but I did add this funny clip just as they were leading into that conversation. And I thought this would be a good clip to just show how Theo's brain just works on a different level than everyone else. I know that it makes me feel better if I yeah. do something athletic, you know? What SSR are you taking? I think I'm on Lexapro right now. I take the generic one, whatever the cheaper one is. You know, I think it's, um, I don't know what it is, but it is, they say it's fine. <laughs> you know? So I don't know if I believe them, but I mean, I'm fucking taking it. Now, I would like to, ta I would like to maybe take 30 days off and try ayahuasca again. Mm. I feel like I'm getting back around where I would like to do it again, you know? Yeah? Yeah. Do, 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 do. I would, man. Because I want to fucking feel. I want to be right up there on nature's fucking... Mm, I want to be in there. Eavesdropping on nature's nuts, mm, boy. I yeah. Think, God, I'll be right up there. Yeah. What'd you say, boy? In <laughs> eavesdropping on nature. <laughs> right up next to it. Oh, dude. Feeling that, it. Oh, ayahuasca, dude. You'll fucking... Mother Nature, you'll be, she'll break out that wiener and you'll be like, damn, I didn't know Mother Nature had a wiener, you know? It's, Mother Nature's got everything. It's powerful, dude. That ayahuasca stuff is real powerful. So I would like to do that again. I realize this could just be a whole set of completely random clips that make no sense whatsoever. But I hope some of you are finding it as hilarious as I am. All right. So we're going to move into the last clip from this episode. And I love this because they talked about Ron White, another absolute legend of a comedian. 
And then when they were talking about it, Jamie, the producer, he brought up a very old Ron White clip of him doing a joke about peeing while tubing down the river while drinking beers. And I will point out that the Ron, how Ron White sounds in this clip is nothing like the Ron White that I know. It actually was, it was recorded 34 years ago, so he's completely changed since then. But anyway, the joke that he tells is, it's okay. I think it's, it's funny. It's certainly not amazing, but that's not why I'm adding it into this you know, part of the review. I'm adding it in because of um, what Theo said after it and how he reacted to the, uh, to the clip. So let's have a listen. He's too goddamn good. That guy's never going to quit doing comedy. He's too good. He's too, even just listening to him is fun. And he comes from a time, he has a time period trapped in him mm. that is, un, a lot of people don't have it. He's got that rural Texas, mm -hmm. like a way and a look at the world that mm -hmm. you have to have that voice still out there. Yeah. You know, you have to. Well, he's a, he's a real legend. Oh, and yeah. having him around the club all the time, it's like, it's it's so morale boosting oh, for everybody. I just saw this video of him. Look at Ron White, look at his... 1989. Give me some of this. Yeah. You know, I was amazed by this. Uh, 21 of us took us down there uh, uh, to tube the Guadalupe River. We had six ice chests full of beer. We floated down that river drinking beer for six and a half hours. Not one person had to pee. <laughs> bladder control. I, I'd like to think my friends wouldn't pee on themselves. I know I would. That's the best thing about tubing the river. You could just paddle up to somebody you don't even know. God, it's pretty true, dude. Just peeing right next to somebody. Yeah, There's drugs. nothing. Look at him back then. Wow. Look at him back then with the long hair. He was like a hippie. Bro, there's, Early 90s. Wow. There's nothing better than being in a um, pool talking to somebody and peeing at the same time. I get point There's a lot range. of things better than that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right, boy. There's a lot of things better <laughs> no, than that. I mean, That's a... not even in the top thousand. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Out of all the good things, the smell of fresh baked bread is better than that. <laughs> all right, baby, dude. Without even eating it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you got a fucking kitchen or whatever, yeah, but still, I'm saying if you're really just out in the elements, dude, mm. be in point blank range urinating in somebody else's space. And that they doesn't don't know it. do anything good for me. I feel like a terrible person for pissing on somebody. Yeah, you're right. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. We're, Why are you out there peeing on people? We're, we're better than that. Bro. We're better than that. Yeah, we are. Come on, man. Yeah, you're right. We're better than that. You're right. I'm not going to let that affect me. All right. So that's going to do it for Theo Vaughn on the Joe Rogan experience. Let me know. Was it completely random and made no sense? Or could you also understand You know why I added that in and why I found it so funny? I'd love to hear. Okay, so we're going to move on to the conversation that Theo had with Malcolm Gladwell on his um, on his own podcast. And you might have heard of the book Outliers before. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is the author of that book. It was published back in 2008. And I actually read this book last year. So I was familiar with some of his work. And it's why I actually pressed play on the episode in the first place. However, I hadn't heard of the book that they had talked about a lot on this episode during their conversation. It's called Talking to Strangers. This one was published much earlier back in, it's only in 2019. And since I've listened to this episode, I've gone and bought the book and I'm about a third of the way through. And so far, it's really interesting. In this first clip, they're going to talk about 
One of the findings that Malcolm wrote about in his book, time and time again, in many different situations, um, meeting someone makes us a far worse predictor of an outcome than if we just look at the facts. And the book does a very, very good job of highlighting many of these situations. And they're just going to be talking about, you know, one or two scenarios here. Just going back into your book and, and along this kind of same thread, one of the things that really stood out to me was about how judges and machines, like if you put the information, like if you put people before a judge in a mm -hmm. court, that the judge who you think would be able to interpret what the, like a lot more information by seeing the person listening to the case, they got it wrong more than the machine mm -hmm. did. Is that yeah, the right the, way to say it? The, so if if I simply give you the, so the question is, you're a, you've been arrested and the judge has to decide whether to let you out on parole. Yeah, yeah, I have. And that's, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm talking hypothetically. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 sorry. But um, yes. the, so the judge has to make a prediction about you. And the question is, how good is the prediction, right? And a lot rides on that prediction. If you go out and commit another crime, the judge looks bad. Um, yeah, it's why they cut people's hair and shave them and put them in a suit. And exactly. It's about that perception. So the question is, I could just summarize on paper all of the things about you, where you live, how old you are, nature of your crime, whether you've been arrested before, feed them into a computer or uh, an AI system, right? And have, them, have the computer make a prediction. Or I can give the same information to the judge and say, meet the person. So you're giving the judge more information. You're allowing the judge to look at all the information the computer looks at, plus whatever information they can glean from the face-and-face -face en encounter. And the question is, is the judge better at making that prediction um, because they have access to more information, to the information they can gather from a face-to-face -face encounter? And the answer is no, they're worse. Wow. In other words, meeting somebody makes you worse <laughs> at predicting what they're going to be doing then. That definitely feels counterintuitive to me. I, I would just assume that meeting someone, talking with them, it's just going to help us make a better decision about them. But maybe that's just wrong. It's definitely an interesting thing to think about, I think. So this next clip, I wanted to add in because it's a really good example of how Malcolm Gladwell just sees things differently than most of the way, you know, the way that most of us see things. He talks about how in sports, some general managers or GMs and coaches are more successful than others. And people just simply put that down to that they're really good at spotting talent or drafting good players or trading, you know, making good trades for good players. But Malcolm points out that it could be more to do with the fact that when these, you know, every player in the professional leagues is talented. So when those talented players get into the coaching system, it makes them more successful. And in hindsight, it makes that trade or that draft pick more successful, but it could be more to do with the actual coaching system that they're in. And that's why that coach or that general manager has a legacy of success. It's because the system that they create, not that they're necessarily so much better than everyone else at sporting talent. I thought that was interesting. So let's have a listen. What's interesting, and this is the thing I explored in that episode was it makes you realize that the success of someone in a job is less about that person than it is about the environment you create for that person once they take the job. In other words, a lot of it is about us, the hiring person, not the person we're hiring. That lots and lots of people can thrive if they're brought into an environment that helps them thrive. You know, it's like, in, I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but there are certain coaches who can make, you know, tons of players 
go to that coach, and the coach reliably turns them into excellent basketball players or football players. Right. And other coaches, it only works with very, very specific people. It makes you realize, oh, it's about the coach, not about the player. I always, you know how they always talk about general managers in sports, and they say, that guy's really great at drafting great athletes out of college. And I always think, maybe they're not good at drafting. Maybe they're just good at making sure those players succeed once they arrive. Mm. Right? That's the, that's the magical piece of it. So not long after they, they just talked about that, they went on to talk about how happiness can be achieved in your job and what three things need to be satisfied for that to happen. And without one or more of those elements, you're unlikely to be happy. And I'm going to guess that this part is going to be very relatable for many of us. We're happiest when we have three kinds of kind of validation. When we like what we're doing, when the people around us give us positive feelings about what we're doing, and when the broader world gives us feedback. And it's like, if you look at people who are unhappy, it's because in what they're doing, they're lacking one or more of those three things. So we were talking about police officers right now. There are plenty of police officers who like their job and like the people they work with, but now they're operating in an environment where the world, the outside world, is very skeptical and hostile and suspicious of police officers. That makes it really hard to be happy in your job as a police officer, right? You got two of the three things, and you need all three. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare, yeah. I was talking with, I had this, did I, did, we read it on my podcast, I did this wonderful discussion with these two fantastic women who were coaches. Um, They coached uh, youth sports, Mm -hmm. girls sports. And they were talking about how, like, a lot of people are now quitting coaching. Coaching has become really hard. And I said, well, why has it become hard? Do you still like, does coaching make you feel good? Absolutely. Love it. Greatest thing I ever did. Do the kids you coach like being coached by you? Totally. I'm, you know, I'm friends with them for years later. It's some of the most important experiences of my life are like, so why don't, why aren't people quitting coaching? They're like, oh, it's the parents. Parents are driving us crazy torturing us, screaming at us, calling us at all hours. So it's like they have the personal thing. They love it. They have the immediate feedback and love from the kids they're coaching. But it's the outside world of the parents on the sidelines who are just making them miserable. Yeah. Right? You got two of three and two of three is not enough. I know we're just skipping from one topic to the next in this review, but I really wanted to give you an idea of what this conversation was like. The entire episode was actually about two, I think it's over two hours long. So this is obviously just a very short snippet of their conversation. And the next part I wanted to talk about was Malcolm's views on social media. I I liked how it made me feel normal as I'm in the camp that's addicted to their phone as well. And you will hear the quote that he gives which I think is so key to the entire conversation on social media, which is social media is an impersonal medium masquerading as a personal medium. And how many times have you thought that someone wouldn't have said said what they commented to your face directly uh, if, if you were talking to them? Uh, and that's why, because we get confused thinking that it is a personal medium when it's actually very impersonal. So it was just really another example of how Malcolm just thinks about things really clearly and really well and, uh, and can get his point across. So let's have a listen. I didn't understand how much it would encroach on my life. Like if you had asked me 10 years ago or even five years ago, will I be checking my phone every two minutes? I would have said, you're nuts. I'm not going to be ruled by my phone. Totally ruled by my phone. 
Um, yeah, same. That, like, so I did not, I didn't understand how it would sort of ingratiate itself into something like Twitter. The idea that, that, that I would be, I don't spend a huge amount of time on Twitter, but I do. I scroll through on my, that, you know, when you're reading two sentences, the idea that I would want to consume so much information in two sentence form seems crazy to me in retrospect. Like, why? Yeah. I was someone who grew up reading books, you know, consuming things in 10,000 sentence form. Um, yeah, now you're reading like a, it could be a haiku from some crackhead somewhere. You some, don't even know. And you're taking it for serious. Yeah, it's like there's a great meme attached to it and now I form a huge opinion off of it. In the beginning, it took me a long time to figure out like how easy it is to take it personally. So somebody mm. makes a random comment and you feel it in the beginning, you're injured. And then you think, why am I injured? Like there's a couple billion people in the world, some random person who I've never met, who I will never meet, who I don't even know who they are, has decided to say something nasty. It's an impersonal medium masquerading as a personal medium. Right. That's the thing. And it takes a little while for you to wrap your head around the fact that like, no, this doesn't matter. It's a random, it matters as little as in the old world, that, that person said that same thing, but you didn't hear it. Now you hear it, mm. and it, but it's just, it's just as trivial. It didn't matter. It's like, right. I once conducted an experiment where I responded nicely to people who commented, said nasty things about me on Twitter. And I wanted to see what happened. And what happens when, if they respond again, is they almost invariably back down. And you realize that they didn't actually, they didn't mean harm to you, or they weren't actually angry at you or hostile. They just didn't know how to express, they had a comment they wanted to make that was with an issue they had with what you were saying. They just didn't know how to say it in a way that was kind of socially kind of positive. Or, and if, you, if, you're, if you're nice about it and kind of, I used, I used to call this um, love bombing, and I'm still a believer in love bombing. So I would love bomb them, and I would just sort of be nice in a response. And they would always like calm down and they would say, yeah, you're right. You're kind of right. I just, I just wondered about this. And you're like, all of a sudden you're having a conversation with them, right? Yeah. It's like, it's very easy to disarm 90% of critics. Yeah. Just by kind of taking them, giving them the opportunity to be nicer about what they're saying. I've heard other people give that same analysis that if they just reply back and be nice and calm back to them, that the person who was commenting actually just totally backs down and doesn't even expect you to read it, in fact. So it was quite it was quite interesting, I thought. Now, there was much more to talk about on that episode. It was, as I said, over two hours long. It's definitely worth investing the time and downloading that episode and having a full listen over on Theo's podcast this past weekend. Okay, that's going to be all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any recommendations or suggestions that you would like reviewed on a future episode, please let me know via Instagram or by emailing ltbympodcast at gmail.com. If you have made it to this part of the show, I would like to ask that you press follow on your podcast app as this really helps with the algorithm and getting in front of more people. And it's also, it's a little sign to me that you are liking what we're doing over here. Also, you might want to add a recommendation on our upcoming deep dive episode on music, which is currently a highlighted post on our Instagram page. The post will explain the whole thing if you go over and see it. This is really fun and your support is really appreciated. Thank you so much. Talk to you next episode.